Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Welcome back to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Michael Group, a search firm helping companies across MedTech to build high-performing teams, primarily areas like regulatory and quality and clinical market access and reimbursement. I've got the privilege and the pleasure of hosting so many different guests uh, from the industry on all things talent, and today is no difference. Now, if you are in regulatory or quality and you haven't heard of our guest today, you got to come out from under your rock and uh, because you can learn definitely a thing or two. We're talking none other than Mr. Karen Deep Singh Bodwell. I'm so grateful that he's here. Karen Deep has been in the regulatory and quality space for over nine years. He's worked for companies like Nature's Bounty, Abbott, and others along the way. And then in 2018, he founded his consulting firm, QRA Medical. A, a firm that helps med device organizations across the world to achieve regulatory approval and quality compliance. Karen Deep also hosts the MedTech podcast, which you need to check out because he features so many tips centered around your organization's quality and regulatory program, in addition to advice related to growing your own career in RAQA. We made it. Karen Deep, how are you, man? Well, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on, Mitch. It's kind of a, a uh, inside joke, although I'm making it not inside. Karen Deep and I have tried to uh, start this recording about three or four times, but <laughs> we, we made it. You know, uh, you've become a friend of mine. I can say that with certainty and with gratitude because not only do you do so much for the industry, but you've really been an advocate for me and the Anthony Michael Group. And I just really appreciate you as an individual. I know that you have a hobby for cars and a love for cars. And uh, I'm just grateful that you're here today. We're going to dig in. We're going to talk about regulatory and quality from a talent perspective. I've got some interesting questions for you to get your vantage point on. But before I do, you know, there's a lot of listeners that are in those functional areas for their jobs. And you have the luxury of being able to, to see quality and regulatory from so many different viewpoints because of the types of businesses that you work with across the world, for that matter. If you would, just give us a quick state of the union. What's going on? What do you see as the hot topics right now? And what are people perhaps struggling with or being kept up at night for? So at this current moment in time, getting a approved body or an EU notified body to be able to actually come down and review technical files is a challenge in itself. So what I mean by that, in my experience, most notified bodies and approved bodies are quoting anywhere from 12 to 18 months before they even, even be able to look at your technical files, forget even getting market approval. And what I mean by approved bodies and notified bodies, so unlike the US where you deal directly with the FDA when you want market approval, in the UK you deal with what's known as approved bodies and they give you a UKCA marking. And in the EU you deal with what's known as a notified body and they give you CE marking. As a result of that, companies are saying, hey, you know, if that's the case in the UK and EU, we're going to go to the US first. So at this current moment in time, the US is a very hot market for medical devices. And it's simply because that the notified bodies and the approved bodies don't have the capacity and they don't have the sort of manpower and the resources to be able to begin that technical file review process. 
And that's a bit of a mess at the moment. Is that a result of this whole EUMDR push over the last few years and, and what's kind of happening now? They're talking, I don't know if it, the proposal has come forward or where, what the um, current status is as far as pushing back the timelines, but this whole bottleneck with these notified bodies, is that a result of every, all the changes that have been being pushed to make over the last couple of years? Very much so, because what's happened as a result of the EU MDR, some notified bodies have walked out. They've said, you know what, this is too much for us. And they've decided that they're no longer going to be certified. So number one, the issue is there's far less notified bodies than there ever were under the MDD, now under the MDR. Number two, under the MDR right now is, of course, the audits are taking a little bit longer than usual. So audits that maybe would have took a couple of days are now taking four days. So as a result of that, the notified bodies now need more resources. Now, the issue is with notified bodies, they have what's known as technical assessors. So these are product experts. to be a guy who's like very knowledgeable on cardiology. Another guy is very knowledgeable and maybe on neuromodulation. Now, trying to find that talent is quite hard. So the notified bodies themselves are having a challenge. So yeah, very much so. It is a result of the EU MDR. And of course, what's happened with the EU MDR is a lot of companies sort of their devices have been upclassified where you've got previously what was a class one self-certified has now maybe become a class two or class two devices maybe now become a class three. Hence now needs a lot more technical documentation for that market approval process. So as a result of the EU MDR, yes, very much so. That is why this situation has arise. How has that put pressure on the FDA knowing that most, because historically, you would seek to get a CE marking first and then work on the F- getting your product approved in the US, right? Yeah, that, that was right. The Europe and the UK was known as like the center of innovation that you would go UK and Europe first. You would come up with your innovative ideas. Once you've got some experience and you've sold some products on the market, you go to the US. What's happened now as a result, it's actually the other way around. Where companies are deciding, hey, you know, we want to go to the US. The UK and EU is quite restrictive. Once we've got UK market, sorry, USA market approval, we're going to go to the EU afterwards. So what's happened now, it's switched the game altogether. So yes, is the, the FDA feeling pressure? Yes, I'm seeing that right now. Whereas with the FDA in terms of how long it takes to actually get a product to market and how long it takes for them to do a review, those days are actually getting longer for the US. So I feel as though the FDA is feeling pressure. However, on the other hand, I think the US market is going to do really well over these next few years due to what the MDR has caused. A lot of companies want to go to the US first. So, you know, if you're a US-based consultant in quality and regulatory, you're going to be getting a lot more business than you ever did in the past. Yeah, which is good stuff for a lot of our listeners. You know, the premise of this show is all things talent, right? And I wanted you to be able to give a state of the union as far as what's going on at a high level with regulatory and quality. But what I want to dig into is the career aspect. You know, so many leaders that I've spoken to over the years, they talk about, you know, you can go and get an entry-level specialist job or a quality specialist or a quality tech or regulatory specialist job. And you start to learn the fundamentals, right? What goes, what are the ISO standards? What goes into a 510K submission? And then you start to be able to have more hands-on experience with that, whether it's dealing with complaints and investigations and CAPAs or dealing with how do you file a submission, actually be, you know, in contact with the FDA on behalf of your organization through the submission process. But what leaders talk about is the idea of operating in the gray and what makes great regulatory and quality professionals is the ability to operate in the gray, where it's not black and white answers, where you really have to understand the guidances, you have to understand the requirements, you have to have your ethics in place, but you have to find a balance of what the guidances say versus what's in the best interest of your organization as far as moving your product development process along. 
And I'd love to talk with you and get your vantage point on this because you've talked to so many professionals in the industry and I'm sure you see the differences and I'm sure you see the different mindsets of one CEO versus another as far as how he or she views regulatory and quality and the importance to their product development strategy. But what does that mean to you as far as operating in the gray? So for me, with quality and regulatory, there is never a 100% guarantee, and we have to accept that as a company. Now, in terms of operating in the gray, in my opinion, that's what makes quality and regulatory fun, because you're never 100% sure what your results are going to be, and it was all about mitigating risks. So in quality and regulatory, we're all taught that there are risks in terms of products. What we do is we try to reduce that risk as far as possible. That's the wording that we use. And we can apply that also to regulatory approvals or regulatory submissions is that we're never 100% sure that it's going to get approval. But what you do is you try to do your best and you go above and beyond to do as much as you can. And the thing is with a lot of quality and regulatory professionals, especially in their early careers, is that often afraid to argue with a auditor. And I really think that that's the key here is that if you've got a submission going on or if you've got something, you can always negotiate with the FDA. You can always negotiate with the notified bodies and push your ideas across. But again, that's what it is. The key here in terms of that gray area is be able to push your point across and be willing to negotiate rather than just take a black and white answer of yes or no, or we don't accept this. Be willing to push your ideas across. Of course, the way you go about mitigating is work to the relevant stance. There's plenty of standards. There's plenty of guidance documents out there where regulators push that out. They do that for a reason. Now they call called guidance documents, but strictly speaking, if the FDA has released a guidance paper and told you how to do something, they're basically telling you how to do it. You know, if you want to go and do it in another way, you better have a very good justification for that. And the beauty of the FDA, and this is what I really like about the FDA, is that you can have pre-submission conversations with them. You can have discussions with them before you even do your submission. And that's what I really love about the FDA. Now, with the EU notified body or a UK notified body, you can't necessarily have those early conversations. But in terms of the US, if you have the opportunity to speak to the FDA before you even do a submission, you'll actually find they're quite supportive of what you're doing. So I do really recommend that if you're a quality and regulatory professional, use the pre-submission process, have those early conversations with the FDA. That way that you know that you know you can mitigate any potential errors in your submissions effectively. Talk more, if you would, about this idea of negotiating with the notified body, negotiating with the FDA. What do you mean by that? And somebody who's a little bit more junior listening to that, uh, what can they, you know, what are some takeaways that you can give to them? So effectively, if you work within a company, you understand that product insider. Now, the notified body or the FDA or whoever you're dealing with is seeing that product for the first time. So what makes sense to you may not necessarily make sense to them. So it may be that when they're looking at your documentation, they may misinterpret something and therefore come up with a decision. By all means, jump on a call with the regulators, explain to them what your situation is all about. But again, we, we get into that situation where you know the product inside out and it makes complete sense to you, but then may not make sense to the regulators. So my opinion of what I talk about in terms of that gray area is make your points very clear, talk to the regulators. If they may be misunderstood something, point them in the right direction. They may say, hey, you haven't described X, Y, Z, but you may turn around and say, hey, if you look at section six of this document, there's a couple of sentences that explains that. It might be that the auditor maybe hasn't realized that. So don't bash on the auditor, make their life much easier and try to explain to them what you're all about effectively. Because again, this is the first time they're seeing that product. This is the first time they're compensating with you and they're just looking at it from surface value. So always try to make their life a little bit easier. And my recommendation, of course, is always have some sort of documentation in place, which is like a pinpoint. So always have some sort of documentation as part of your submission, which is kind of signposting and telling them where to look exactly in terms of the information that they're looking for. That's good advice. 
Let me ask you some questions about what you see from a, from a higher level, from a company standpoint, when you come in to consult. First of all, are more companies now than not electronic-based when it comes to the quality documentation, the quality management system? Or are you still seeing a ton of companies that are, are still uh, paper-based? In my opinion, it's a hybrid. It's very rare that I come across a company that's fully electric. There's still some paper based in that company. But for me, it's more of a hybrid-based system. They go electric where possible. And again, I suppose it depends on the type of company too. If I'm dealing with a software company, with medical device software companies, often they're very much remote-based, hence they do everything electronically. If you go to the traditional-based companies, your pacemakers, defibrillators, you know, production facilities, what we think are traditional medical devices, they use a paper-based system combined with an electronic. So I think really it's a combination of two. So it really depends on the type of company that it is and the culture that's there. So for example, if you've got a company that's been around for 50 or 60 years, they're very old school in their ways. They're still going to have very much a paper-based system. People are turning up to the office. So what they often have is a hybrid system, which is paper-based and part electronic. Then you've got the new startups, which is purely electronic startup-based company, which is software only. You know, the people are scattered all over the world in terms of that company and they're using something that's electronic. So in my opinion, it's maybe a case of what the company does and how long they've been around. So the older companies still do prefer that paper-based kind of system in terms of hybrid. And then the newer companies prefer the electronic QMS system. So I'm seeing a blend of both at the moment, but very much so the trend is moving from paper to electronic, but there are still companies out there that still do things by paper. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that are pushing for uh, regulatory staff to come back to the office, at least on a hybrid basis. And for years, regulatory folks have wanted to work remotely and have tried to make the point that their job can be done remotely. And then COVID happened and they didn't, everybody went remote. But now there's this push to, hey, we at least want you in a couple of days in the office because you need to meet with R&D. You need to meet with engineering. Marketing needs to see it. We all need to be in a room together in an effort to drive our product development initiatives forward. And regulatory is like, that's not really the case. What's your vantage point on this? If, if a, a leader of a business was listening to this and said, I really think regulatory needs to be here. They need to be able to touch the product. They need to be able to you know, meet with teams. Where do you stand on that? My view on it is regulatory need to have a presence. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be in person. It can be done remotely. But regulatory is one of those jobs where in medical devices, not every job is like that, where you have an oversight of the whole company. You're involved in management reviews. You're seeing the market approval. So you understand the company as a whole. And you need to communicate across to other job functions in terms of what you do. Now, sadly, the opinion of quality and regulatory is that they stifle innovation. That's not the case. Rules and regulations exist just for patient safety. You know, We don't want to produce products out there that can cause potential harm or potentially kill somebody. That's why regulations effectively exist. So my opinion or what I say to those people is if your regulatory people can communicate their message effectively remotely and people in the company get it, respect that. Now, if you're in a situation where your company has that, you know, we need somebody physically on site to be able to drill that message into them, in that case, you may need a hybrid system. So it really comes down to how effective are your regulatory team communicating the message across? If people can do that remotely, great. If you feel as though as an individual, that person needs to be on site, they need to be present and they need to be seen to get that message across, then yeah, I completely agree with you that they need some on-site presence. So when it comes to, I'm all over the place with questions, but I'm glad that you're here because you're a wealth of knowledge on all this stuff. When it comes to documentation, where are companies falling down? Like if you're called in, you're called in for, you know, it's either a major submission that they need help with and maybe they don't have a regulatory 
a full-time person and they're leveraging a consultant to help them, or maybe they've gotten a warning letter and they need help to try and get out from under the warning letter on the quality site, whatever it may be. But where do you see companies falling down on documentation? So in my opinion, what I always say to a company, I always peel it back to what's known as the intended use statement. Who's your patient population? What are your claims that you're making about your product? What are your indications? What is the use environment? Is this something going to be used at home? Is it going to be by the lay user? Is it going to be used by a professional? And I'm often quite surprised by companies that don't actually know what their product is. Now, until you've got that intended use statement nailed down and know what your product is, you know who your target market is, you build your technical documentation around that. Now, if you've built your technical documentation on basically a somewhat loose interpretation of what your product is, that's where the problems effectively begin. So always peel it back, work out what your product is, work out what it is that you want to do with it, and then work in that direction. But what I'm seeing with companies is they're building technical documentation, but they're never 100% sure what their product actually is. And that's where the issues lie. I want you to repeat that last piece. So obviously understanding the what the direction of your product and working from there. But what did you say at the very end? So effectively, if you don't know what your product is, you can't build technical documentation that's going to be relevant to what that product actually, that's what I'm trying to say effectively is until you know what your product is, you can't build technical documentation around it. Companies have a rough idea what their product is and build technical documentation. But then that error trickles on, if you see what I mean. Yes, absolutely. And so really being solid, obviously, you know, as the device or the product gets, there's iterations, there's new uh, indications or new directions for use. But from the very get-go, what is the fundamental intended use so that you can build your documentation around that piece, tried and true? So Karen Deep, I've got one last question for you. And this is one that I get all the time. Hey, Mitch, I'm in marketing right now. I'm a product manager and I really have an interest in getting into regulatory affairs. How do I do it? Or I've been a quality engineer for a couple of years. I really have an interest in, you know, doing more submission work and working in regulatory with the FDA. How do I do it? Now, I've got my own two cents as far as, you know, recommendations I have for folks, but I'm sure you get this question a lot too. As a matter of fact, I know you've put out content. How do I get into regulatory and quality? What's your advice? My advice is do not discount what you've done in the past. So effectively, if you worked in sales or you've worked in marketing, you would have had some form of regulatory experience with us speaking to the regulatory guys or maybe getting some exposure. So don't get to the point where you think that you have to start from zero. Number two is speak to your line managers. If you're working in a big organization and maybe you're in sales or in marketing, you've got an interest in quality and regulatory. Make it clear to your manager, say, hey, look, you know, I've got a bit of interest in regulatory. Or well, even that's not the case, speak to the quality and regulatory people in the company. Say, hey, you know, I'm interested in these roles. What do you guys actually do? Do you mind if you know, take them out for lunch, take them out for coffee, speak to them and say, hey, you know, what do you guys actually do? Start learning that in the background. Now, the beauty of regulations is that they're freely available online in multiple different languages. You know, you can download the EU MDR in many different languages. You can go to the US FDA and the beauty of the FDA is they've got so many different guidance documents. You can lend this at home completely free of charge. And my recommendation is for those people, you know, if they really want to get into quality and regulatory affairs is, you know, stay in your job function, but maybe try and do something that gives you a little bit of taste of what quality and regulatory is and start moving in that direction. Number two, of course, is if you want to, there are various different courses that you can do online. You know, you can do ISO 13485, internal auditor courses, lead auditor courses. You can learn all about the regulations. I'm aware that universities and different programs that you can do um, quality and regulatory affairs degrees. There's professional organizations like RAPS, Regulatory uh, Affairs Professional Society and TOPRA, the Organization for Professionals in Regulatory Affairs. You can join these organizations, you can do various courses, you can go to their events and you can start transitioning into quality and regulatory. So really my recommendation is go out and join these professional organizations, go out to their events, 
start speaking to quality and regulatory professionals, let them know what your experience is all about. Because, you know, I would love to hear from a sales and marketing guy because they've got a completely different opinion in terms of medical devices. So it'd be great to get their opinion on things. So don't just think, hey, I'll work in sales and marketing. I can not use that experience and not go into quality and regulatory. You're coming in from a different insight and try and sell that on them. Hey, you know, I'll work in sales and marketing. I understand this side of the business. So if I come into quality and regulatory affairs, I can bring my view onto that. So leverage experience that you currently already have. And that's the way to get into quality and regulatory. I don't know if I could have summed that up better. Really, you hit on everything. The idea of leveraging the experience that you do have, the idea of networking with your current uh, colleagues and uh, trying to offer value in exchange for picking their brain, take them out to coffee or have a Zoom, you know, a virtual coffee and pick their brain. Um, Make it known internally with the hiring managers in those functional areas that you're interested in perhaps making a change doing your due diligence outside of work and understanding what do the guidances say and, and trying to learn as much as you can on your own, talking with consultants like Karen Deep in the industry. Um, but I will say, with all those tips, trying to make this change is going to be much easier internally where you're a known commodity than it is to go to another organization where not only do you have to prove yourself as a professional with the skill set that you do have and the expertise that you do have, but now you're trying to make a change into something that you've never done before. So I would say do your absolute best to try and make that transition with your current organization. Karen Deep, I really appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. Uh, I know you're running a successful consulting practice and encourage folks who are uh, struggling with any QA or RA uh, initiatives to reach out to you. We'll put a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes and perhaps a link to your website if that works for you. That works for me, which is a pleasure being on the show. And I hope the listeners got some value of what I've said today. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.